So I'm fishing on a party boat, the Dauntless, out here in Point Pleasant, right? And we're on a black fishing trip in the middle of, uh, I think it was January or something like that. I mean, butt cold. It's like 20 degrees out. There's like a snowstorm. We're reeling in like three to four pound blackfish, one after another over the rail, blah, blah, blah. When I'm dropping down, we're 150 foot of water. I start reeling up this fish. You know, I think it's another blackfish reeled up and I put it on deck and I look at it and I'm like, that's not a blackfish. And then Captain Butch up, up on the helm, he goes, Nick, man, he goes, that's not a blackfish, that's a bergal. Now to preface what a bergal is, bergals are little trash fish, we, you know, I don't mean to say trash fish, but little undesirable fish that are like usually anywhere from three to four inches long tops, yeah. Yeah. right? Tops. And we're like, that's a Bergal. And Butch is like, you got to weigh that thing in, dude. He goes, that's a world record, man. He's like, that's got to be. I'm like, I'm not going to weigh in a Bergal, dude. You know? like, <laughs> and everyone, so I call back on land. I'm like, Shawnee, what's the state record for a Bergal? He's like, one pound, three ounces. Our story has it. I go, oh, dude, I got that beat. I'm like, what's the world record? He's like, two pounds three ounces now first of all i'm thinking to myself there's an actual record recognized by igfa for regal right <laughs> i'm like what the heck is it so you know we get off the boat blah 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 <clears throat> i got this huge tub or not a tub but the cooler and fisherman supply my buddy brian over there at the docks he closes at 4 p.m so it was like 355 i call him like dude keep the scales up it was gonna get crazy i got a potential world record and as i'm going you know across like the the parking lot with this, like, you know, the cooler full of ice and this fish. I see Kenny on the Mimi, who's this hardcore, salty dude. And he's like, what are you doing? What do you got in the cooler? I go, world record, dude. He goes, what is it? I go, Bergal. He goes, get the F out of here. Like that. He goes, he's like, why are you wasting my time even saying that? So we go to uh, Fisherman Supply, puts it on the scale. It's two pounds, nine ounces, right? This is the Tom Rowland Podcast. Fascinating stories to amaze, encourage, and inspire you in fishing, fitness, and the outdoors. And we're brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee. I started this podcast as a way to connect with my friends, people that I admire and respect, and you. It has been a learning journey that's made me a better person, a better fisherman, a better father, and a better athlete. I'm so happy that you're on this journey with me, and I'd love to hear from you with show suggestions, guest suggestions, or questions. The best way to get a hold of me is through text. You can text 305-930-7346 for the fastest response, but if you prefer to email, you can send that to podcast at saltwaterexperience.com. That's a dedicated email address just for the show. If you like this show, you can show your support by posting about it on social media and tagging me. Text the link to a couple of friends that may also enjoy it and subscribe and leave a five-star review if you feel like I've earned it. The website is TomRollandPodcast.com, and that is where everything lives. All past shows, you can go and listen to any show. You can look up all the different shows that we've done, both the How-To Tuesdays, the Full Links, and the Physical Fridays. They all live on TomRollandPodcast.com, and the social media is Tom underscore Roland, R-O-W-L-A-N-D, on Instagram, or you can go to our big account, saltwater underscore experience. I hope to hear from you soon. So now let's get on to today's show. How you guys doing today? I'm Nick Honoszewski, and I'm a guest on the Tom Roland podcast.
Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores, and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com waypoint. That's mintmobile.com waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Nick, what's up, man? How are you? What's going on, Tom? How you been, brother? Man, I've been doing great. I've been doing fantastic. I feel like I feel like I know you a little bit, even though we've never met in person. I don't think, but we have we have mutual friends, and I've heard a lot about you over the years, uh, especially Lloyd Walters. Um, he he <laughs> That's right, yeah. he's he's a good man, that Lloyd, and he's told me lots of stories about you. Um, but I'm glad to get you on the podcast, man. What have you been up to? Yeah, I appreciate it, brother. I uh, wish I was down there in the Florida weather right now at Hawks Cave, man. Uh, Jersey's a little cold right now. <laughs> is it? Did you get a bunch of snow from this storm, or is it just yeah, cold? Yeah, the blizzard, but we're used to it up here. You know how like uh, all the news networks make everything a, a emergency when you know when we got. 10, 12 inches when we were kids in the eighties, they didn't even tell you, you just go right to school. No one would care. <laughs> do they do that? And I'm interested because I grew up in Tennessee and if we even have the threat of snow, they would close the schools down. What is, what, what was a justification for closing the schools when you grew up? Um, I, I think if the bus was actually stuck, you know what I mean? <laughs> so it's like, like you knew the bus was coming, you know, if it was like 10, 15 minutes late, you know, you're like, okay, it's not coming. And then it would show up. But if it was like a half hour late, you go back, you try and call the school, look on the, you know, the news, the little clicker to say, oh, school's closed. But yeah, I think you had to be stuck officially. Wow. That's, well, it's a different, it's a different world when you, when you're used to that and you, you know, you deal with it all the time and then you get in the Southern States and man, I'll tell you what, they don't, they, they, they look at it. I think, I think the administration of the schools, I think all the students, I think everybody is like looking for a snow day because you only get maybe one or two a year. So it's like, yeah, this is yeah. vacation day. <laughs> they'll, they'll cancel school for anything, but, but not anymore. Yeah. Well, um, I've seen your show. It's really good, man. Saltwater underground. How's that going? Yes, sir. So, uh, it's awesome, man. Uh, 
So this is the second season of Saltwater Underground. Uh, we, you know, uh, since you're leading into that, uh, you know, we're on Sportsman's Channel on Fridays at 10:30 a.m. and then Sundays 4:30 p.m. and a.m. And to, uh, this is season two of Saltwater Underground, and uh, it's going awesome, man. I appreciate it. You know, I've been watching Saltwater Experience since you guys came out. Actually, we have met, by the way. Oh, oh, yeah. A time ago, when I was the uh, editor at Saltwater Sportsman at the time. I was down at Hawks K and I was talking with you and Rich right when you guys were trying to get the show started, man. It was like 2009 or 10, something like that. That's right. We're just starting out. But uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. You know, but uh, the show's doing great, brother. Um, You know, uh, I'm excited for it. We're showing a different type of fishing, I guess you could say, for the most part than normal, uh, you know, people watching fishing TV shows. We focus a lot in the Northeast where I'm based out of in New Jersey. And there's definitely not many TV shows out there that are based in the Northeast. So it's kind of cool. You get to see different species, you know? Why, why do you think that is, that, that that's the way that it is just kind of turned out, that there aren't many shows based out of the Northeast? There used to be, like Spider Andreessen, I remember he used to be up there a little bit. And um, yeah. and there would be, you know, um, George Poveromo, I think, has done some stuff up there. But but for the most part, there there hasn't really been a, a show out of there. Why? I wonder why, because the population center is you know, you have tons of fishermen and tons of interest up there. I wonder why there hasn't been a show over the years. And it's strange to me. I'm just glad that I figured <laughs> it out and I'm doing it. Yeah, man. That's, <laughs> that's, what it that's awesome. Know, as you know, it's a tough grind, man. So once you get it going and uh, momentum starts, uh, it's a good thing. Yeah. So what's the, what's the concept when you, when you thought you were going to put a show together, what was your original concept for it? How was it going to be different or, 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 um, well, number one, the species are a little bit different, you know, like we focus like this season, we have, you know, striped bass, um, bluefish, weakfish, fluke, um, sea bass, pollock, a whole bunch of different species that you don't normally see on, uh, you know, regular television or even on like, uh, online shows. And, uh, it's cool. So that's the first, um, uh, you know, the main aspect is species are different and there's nothing against obviously every single other show that's out there with the great species that you always see, you know, but just something different. And we're not opposed to going and fishing in, you know, obviously like Florida, I fish all over the world as a writer. So, you know, we do it all over the place, but I kind of wanted to bring it home and represent, you know, the Northeast a little bit. And along those lines too, <clears throat> I truly you know, there's a, there's a lot of great shows out there with one of yours being included, obviously. I'm not just saying that I love the Thank show, you. Um, you know, and a lot of the shows focus on a lot of how to, you know, and I dig that there's absolutely a place for it, but my show is kind of focused on the experience and I want to bring people into the experience of it because I believe that, um, you know, nowadays, at least, you know, coming from an old guy at 47 years old here, you know, this is the way that I'm thinking is that there's a lot of this younger generation that just wants to go in and get a bang for the buck or like to compete with each other and say, Oh, I did that. I did that. Oh, you suck or blah, blah, blah. But I want to show the experience of coming out from the beginning to the end, you know, how you plan the trip a little bit, the absolute fun that happens during the trip. And then afterwards cooking what we catch, you know, so it kind of shows the whole experience with different characters. And then, uh, you know, from all walks of life, there's a lot of salty characters in our industry, and that's what I want to focus on for the most part. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, that striped bass world is 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 cult like and interesting, and I've never really fully experienced it myself. Um, but seeing the you know the running running the coast movie and and some of the other movies and and um, 
it's just a cool, it's a really cool kind of lifestyle, that whole Northeast fishing lifestyle. And there are some hardcore people up there, man. It's, I mean, you take dedicated, the, man. I know guys who've lost their jobs and lost their wives from pursuit of straight bass, man. Yeah. It's, it's no joke. <laughs> yeah. I, I believe it. And you know, the same can be said for tarpon and, and yeah. saltwater fish. It's not, not something you want to aspire to for any young people living, listening no, to this. You, that's not, that's not actually an accomplishment. That is not no, good no, at no, all. No. That's not what you want to do. Um, but, yeah. but um, yeah, it, it is. Why, why do you, think that 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 particular sport the striped bass and i know you're doing lots of other stuff besides the striped bass but just that i'm just kind of curious and drawn to that that super obsessive life of of chasing those bass what do you think it is about that 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 makes it so obsessive is it that they're they're migratory like the tarpon because i think that's a big part of the tarpon like there's a big part of the year where they're not there and people are just getting excited about them and they're just like man when it when they get here i'm gonna spend all my time on those things and then you know it comes and it goes and 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 they're gone and so and the bass is a little bit like that i think where but i don't i don't know what's your opinion on that so i believe it's actually it has to i mean what you you know, with the migratory patterns, because everyone looks forward to it. We have our straight bass fishery basically from March through December for the most part. Uh, January and February, they've kind of gone south off Chesapeake. But everyone looks forward to that first wave, the initial wave that comes in in March, April. And then by May and June, it's really peaking. That's when the larger cows are coming up to breed, going up through the Hudson, through the Delaware River. And then the summertime, it evens out. And uh, you really have to go nocturnal then to catch bass or really at uh you know, pre-dawn hours before sun up and through the summer, you can catch them. And then in the fall, again, when you get the fall migratory pattern coming South, <clears throat> um, it's just bananas again. You know, it's like, you know, you can catch a hundred bass in a day off the surf from the boat. It's not even an issue. I mean, it's, it's like cheating almost, you know, but, um, <clears throat> you know, number one, the migratory pattern draws people, but the accessibility, yeah. um, you know, and to catch them in so many different ways, like you can, you know, if you're a surf caster, you can bait them up with worms or chunks or, you know, toss plugs and poppers and everything like that, depending on what you want to do, flies from the surf. And then from the boat, obviously you're jigging, you're running and gunning, you control if you're just getting into the striped bass fishery. But the key, and I, I think this is the true key to striped bass, is that, you know, it's just like any fishing. When, when you start off, you want to catch a lot, Right. And then you just want to catch bigger and bigger bass or, or bigger and bigger fish. And then you start understanding the species better. Like, oh, so this is where these, these bigger ones are hanging out. Or, oh, you know, I got to fish at 2 to 4 a.m. on the three days before the full moon, you know, to catch that high tide. And you start learning that, like, you know, you're, you're pursuing larger and larger fish. And with striped bass, it's not out of the realm to catch your trophy, like, fish and a trophy can like i covered this in my show on um the striped bass episode episode one is what consists of a trophy bass right to some people it's like a 15 pounder 20 pounder others it's 20 30 pounds but then others like for me for instance a 50 pound fish is what i consider you know like a trophy bass but there truly is no mark for a trophy a trophy is what you make it you know and what what you think is your trophy at that time you know, mm -hmm. and um, but that's what I'm getting at is that people pursue as you fish more and more through the years for straight bass, you kind of want to target those larger fish and target them with a fly rod now or, a, you know, 
casting a plug off the beach. So, you know, it's, it's, it, and striped bass covers the whole gamut of that, you yeah. know, striped bass fishing itself. So yeah. That's kind of cool. Almost like, almost like the largemouth bass, like, you know, the largemouth bass <laughs> is the most, most popular game fish in the world. And, and a big part of that is, is that it eats all different types of lures and baits and flies and everything. And then it's, a, it's accessible to almost everyone can, can be within a couple hours of a largemouth bass. And, and, you know, you have those big population centers up your way and then you have a lot of fish and yeah, it seems like, seems like that makes a lot of sense. What about the, the health of the fishery um, this year? I know the striped bass is, I try to keep my finger on it a little bit. We've talked about it on the podcast a little bit, but um, the striped bass has, has gone up and down in the health of that fishery. Where do you see it now and and, and in the near future? So it's interesting. Um, I've covered this uh, over 23 years as an editor and writer in the fishing industry. I've seen it happen. You know, when I was a kid, we'd go down to Island Beach State Park and in the 80s, there was no striped bass around. They were legally declared nearly extinct, you know, so they put a moratorium on them in the Chesapeake Bay, which was a major fishery at the time where the breeding populations were. They instituted a moratorium for I think it was three to four years. I forget. Exactly. But then the stocks, the young of the year started, um, you know, growing, getting bigger and bigger. So then through the 90s and late 90s, we started seeing bigger fish like back then in like, say, late 90s. If you saw a 40 pound fish, that's like a once in a lifetime fish type thing. Nowadays, people are catching 30s and 40s and they're, you know, catching the fish of a lifetime saying everyone's a straight bass expert Mm -hmm. now, you know, but they don't realize that that stock was nearly extinct. It's grown through the 90s and 2000s. Then I'd say about in 2008, 2009, when everybody was going out fishing and the the regulations were didn't catch up to that. They, they liberalized them very, very much so. So it would allow for taking the big breeding fish out of the population. And that's a problem like in any time that you're, um, you know, regulating a species. Even though there was a slot limit, it was like one between 24 and 28 and one over 28 to whatever it could be. Um, and then now in the 2010s, they're saying with the young of the year recruitment that there's a little bit more of a downtrend again, right. And, uh, you know, like 2010, 2015 or so, even though the fishing is lights out still, don't get me wrong. It's still lights out fishing, but they're noticing a trend. So they're trying to get ahead of the trend right now and institute regulations with the, which they just did for straight bass, uh, two years ago. It was a year of COVID, when COVID hit in mm-hmm. 2020, I think, yeah. So now there's one fish um, coastwide limit between 28 and 35 inches, I think you can keep. So that's that slot. So anything that's over 35 inches is going to have to be released now. Obviously, below 28. But in Jersey, statewide, it's one fish between 28 and 38 inches. So the still the slot is there. But now they've out-regulated the keeping the breeder big cow fish to, you know, stay in the gene pool. So I do think that the stock is fine right now. Um, it's been rebuilt, but we have to maintain that, con- you know, that conservation minded ethic um, to proliferate the species moving forward. And I, any true fisherman won't complain at the regs as long as it's protecting the stocks. And as long as it's scientifically based, that's legit. Yeah. You know, that's where we get the, the issue is like, is this science legit or are we just taking it on the right. chin on this for no reason, you know? Right. That's so. a that's a good question. That was kind of leads into what I was gonna ask you there is is you said that they are noticing a decline 
And first of all, I wonder who they is in that situation, because mm-hmm. I know that you have so many different states so close together. And that's right. one of the things I had Joe Gugione, Gugione on the show yeah. and Gugino. Sorry. Sorry, Joe. Um, I had him on the show and he was he was explaining about how close the states are and then the federal waters and all of this different stuff that that makes it very difficult for for one state that maybe wants to have more aggressive conservation and they're competing with other states around them. And then there's like, so in your situation where you're saying they're noticing a decline and then they are doing this, first of all, where's that data coming from? Is that from like recreational fishermen that are reporting their catch or is it from commercial or what? Like Jersey doesn't allow for commercial fishing, you know, and that's the main thing I believe is that you've got to get rid of the commercial fishing for straight bass designated game fish, number one, you know? What has happened before is like anytime you get a highly migratory fish, such as a bass from Maine down to North Carolina, right? And those stocks are going back up and forth. And there's only three main breeding grounds with the Chesapeake, Hudson River, and Delaware River, right? So when you're trying to manage a, a truly migratory fish, you know, the one thing that they're finally doing right is it's, in my opinion, is that they're finally getting like a, a federal kind of regulation for a migratory fish. Cause then, as you were mentioned, Joey Gugino was talking about is that, you know, when they have, um, you know, state regulations that are absolutely chipping away at different, uh, you know, year classes. So mm-hmm. the Chesapeake Bay, they were keeping 18 inch fish, right. You know, when we couldn't even Jersey couldn't keep anything below 28 inches at the time. So Chesapeake guys were taking like, I forget what the regs were. It was like two to three fish that were around the 18 inch mark or somewhere around there. Point is they're taking all those little fish out, you know? So whereas at the same time, you know, at that present moment, like Jersey and like New York, we're keeping all the breeder cows, you know? So what happens when you take the youngest of the fishery and the oldest of the fishery, the breeders, you get that middle class that don't ever get a chance to go you know, some of those little fish don't get to grow up to this size and the ones that do don't get to get to the breeding size. So that's a problem, yeah. you know? So I think, and what, along the lines of what they did with redfish with that slot, 18 to 29 inches or something, I think it is. That's, I wrote an article when, um, you know, at Guy Harvey magazine about how the slot limits taking that middle slot out on those really healthy teenage type fish um, is the best way to manage a species, I believe believe you know so certainly seems to work for the redfish they seem to be very healthy right now um Mm -hmm. but that also has to do with the mullet nets and 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 you know when they when they got rid of the mullet fishing that's when the redfish really really took off um but anyway that's it's just um something that we like to keep our finger on you know because you can learn something like even even people in florida can learn something about about management by looking at what's going on with the with the striped bass, whether that's good decisions or bad decisions, and then how it affects other things. And then when it comes to something like a tarpon or or other fish that we have, you know, you can kind of learn a little bit just by seeing what what other people have done, either good or bad, or or maybe you can't tell, which is you know kind of in in indetermined if it was good or a bad decision. But I always like to see what's going on up there because that's such a highly desired fish with so many people wanting to fish for it in so many different ways. And then you have all these states so close together that it just seems, seems difficult just even just to have a fish like that and to manage it uh, on a statewide basis. That just seems, seems difficult. So I'm glad to hear that it's good. On the other end of what you were mentioning about with the mullet, a huge factor of bringing the striped bass back 
was getting the Omega three boats out, which were the bunker and men you guys call them pogies down there. Yeah. Um, all the reduction boats in the eighties, let's say the Russian reduction fleets were up here, scooping up all the bunker in state waters. You know, these are Russian boats out here destroying the fisheries. Right. And likewise, Omega three is based in Virginia, I believe. And their bunker boats were coming up, invading our state waters, taking all our bunker in the spring. You'd see all the bunker come up, all the bass would be on them. And within, you know, a week, the spotter planes were out, the trawlers were out, Persaners picking up all the bunker. Bunker are gone, whales gone, stripers gone, bluefish gone, everything's gone. There's no more bait. It's like a desert. So they enacted a law to finally keep the Virginia boats out of Jersey waters. They have to stay at least three miles off at the federal line. And what happens, right? All the bunker come back. We have whales in the surf. You know, humpback, minky, wow. thinback whales. Really? I hooked a whale on the surf two falls ago. Wow. Like casting a bunker snag, right? And like, I mean, these are 40-foot whales in the surf line, right? And like, there's like, Jersey is like the the biggest whale watching epicenter now, like in the United States, like everywhere. But that's what I'm saying is you get the bunker back and all the life comes back. So mm -hmm. that, was a, that was a big monumental uh, push to get the bunker boats out. Wow, that made that and 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 in how much time did it did it take to see that big difference? Is it like a year, Honestly, like the next was, season? It, yeah, it was immediate. You know, as soon yeah. as the fish, as soon as the bunker were in there, all those fish were there. Because otherwise, they would most times like go 12, 15 miles off and follow like the twenty fathom curve offshore, and the you know the schools would just kind of bypass the whole coastline because there's no bunker around. So they're offshore where a lot of those purse seiners weren't dragging. You know, yeah. That's cool, man. Well, good. I'm glad that the that it's that it's lights out fishing up there. That's that's amazing. Um, so, if you were to kind of on a calendar, like you're fishing, uh, by when does it kind of start? What are you fishing for? And like, how do you go through your year? Just in like Jersey, or uh, yeah, I mean, or... like, well, I mean, whatever. Just you in particular, but you know, with you with your show and and what you do up there, that's kind of interesting. But then you you're all over the place, right? Like, I mean, you're yeah. And so, um, you know, for anyone who uh, you know hasn't read or anything, I've been writing for 23 years in the uh, fishing industry. I was the editor down Saltwater Sportsman. I'm the currently editor at Guy Harvey Magazine. Uh, the Northeast Magazines. I'm I've uh, been writing for On the Water and the Fisherman since they've been. And, you know, since their inception for the most part. And, um, you know, then traveling around, I used to write for a lot of travel magazines when they're around, you know, American Airlines and all that. So I got a chance to travel the world. I fished like everywhere in the Caribbean, Central America, you know, everywhere, all the United States, Alaska, Hawaii. <clears throat> um, so my schedule, you know, in Jersey is great fishing to start off with. January and February are kind of slow, even though we still have blackfish, cod, and stuff like that. But, Usually, like, when the bass start kicking off March 1st, it's like everyone starts getting amped up again to go for stripers. Do that through, you know, March, April, winter flounder, fluke starts in May. And then we get into, like, what's been happening up here lately is the tuna fish. I don't know if you guys have heard about it, but it is lights out, legendary tuna. Even Poveromo, I'm best friends with George. Even he's coming up here to go get his tuna fishing and, you know, and film for his show. So, um, I mean, it's lights out tuna fishing for bluefin. We, and they're like a mile two off the beach, really? you know, like, 
you can literally leave dock at 5.30 a.m. and be back to dock by 10.30 a.m. With your two unders, you're over and probably release another 10, 12, wow. 10. I mean, it, it's been unbelievable. And they're all 50 to 150-pound fish, you know? Yeah. So um, that carries through the summer. And then, um, you know, once the fall comes around again, a lot more straight bass and blue fishing again. And um, wreck fishing for sea bass, cod, pollock, porgies, stuff like that. And uh, I travel around a lot too, um, not necessarily since COVID, but, you know, I'll be in Belize, Nicaragua, uh, St. Lucia, Florida. I just got back from Colorado two weeks ago. We were fishing down there and, uh, you know, just getting around and get around wherever the fishing's happening is where I go, nice. you know, for, for writing or whatever. What are you fishing for in St. Lucia? So have you ever been there before? No, but chance? I'm going next week. <laughs> Going, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to so be there. And, uh, um, I, I'm not sure St. Lucia that's British Virgin Islands or American Virgin Islands. Yeah, no, it's not even the Virgin Islands. Oh, okay. Yeah, well maybe it's I'm, its own island, but it, they, uh, the Hackshaws, right. Uh -huh. own, have been their local people down there in St. Lucia, the Hackshaws own like all the fishing charters down there okay. and Chris Hackshaws, who I used to go. And, but, uh, you know, you going out for Marlin stuff like that. Um, you know, just the regular pelagics that are around. It depends what time of year. You can hook into, you know, mahi, mahi, wahoo, stuff like that. But generally marlin is what they fish for out there. Nice. Yeah. Well, I don't think I'm going to actually go to St. Lucia. I'm going to be in the British Virgin Islands. Um, BVI is awesome, man. Yeah. yeah so, <laughs> I got my first marlin at the North Drop there, dude. Yeah. Well, I would like to. This this is not exactly a fishing trip. This is um, kind of, uh, I don't know what you call it, maybe a entry, empty nest syndrome uh, <laughs> community of of people that we're friends with that all our kids are have left the house now and we can finally yeah. do something that we you know together because you can't you can't do things like that when everybody's got kids and there's always and and not that I don't I, I love going to my kids events but everybody's always got a kids event so this is like <laughs> the first trip that my wife and I have taken with other couples that and and so there's going to be some fishing but not it's not a fishing trip um, anyway, but I was just kind of interested, interested in what St. Lucia, I know that's kind of somewhat nearby, but uh, that's cool. So Lloyd told me um, that you had a world record that I should ask you about <laughs> because, and, and Lloyd, Lloyd's a good friend, man. And he, he gives good advice and he's always giving me good advice. So I'm expecting a really good story here. And I don't, I don't know anything about it. I, I don't know anything about your world record, but I'm going to take Lloyd on his, on his suggestion. And I want to ask you about your world record. Cause I'm assuming it's going to be a good story. So, here it goes. I'll make it real quick. Right. <laughs> so I'm fishing on a party boat, the Dauntless out here in Point Pleasant. Right. And we're on a black fishing trip in the middle of, uh, I think it was January or something like that. I mean, but cold, it's like 20 degrees out. There's like a snowstorm. We're reeling in like three to four pound blackfish, one after another over the rail, blah, blah, blah. Boom, dropping down, we're 150 foot of water. I start reeling up this fish. You know, I think it's another blackfish reeled up and I put it on deck and I look at it and I'm like, that's not a blackfish. And then Captain Butch up, up on the helm, he goes, Nick, man, he goes, that's not a blackfish, that's a bergal. Now, to preface what a bergal is, bergals are little trash fish, we, you know, I don't mean to say trash fish, but little undesirable fish that are like usually anywhere from three to four inches long tops, yeah. right? Yeah. Tops. And we're like, that's a Bergal. And Butch is like, you got to weigh that thing in, dude. He goes, that's a world record, man. He's like, that's got to be. I'm like, I'm not going to weigh in a Bergal, dude. You know? like, <laughs> and everyone 
So I call back on land. I'm like, Shawnee, what's the state record for a regal? He's like one pound, three ounces. Our story has it. I go, Oh dude, I got that beat. I'm like, what's the world record? He's like two pounds, three ounces. Now, first of all, I'm thinking to myself, there's an actual record recognized by IGFA for regal, right? I'm like, what the heck is it? So, you know, we get off the boat, blah, blah, blah. I got this huge tub, or not a tub, but the cooler. And Fisherman Supply, my buddy Brian over there at the docks, he closes at 4 p.m. So it was like 3.55. I call him like, dude, keep the scales up. It was going to get crazy. I got a potential world record. And as I'm going, you know, across like the, the parking lot with this, like, you know, the cooler full of ice and this fish, I see Kenny on the Mimi. who's this hardcore, salty dude. And he's like, what are you doing? What do you got in the cooler? I go, world record, dude. He goes, what is it? I go, Bergal. He goes, get the F out of here. Like that. He goes, he's like, why are you wasting my time even saying that? So we go to uh, Fisherman Supply, puts it on the scale. It's two pounds, nine ounces, right? Which blows the old world record out of, out of the water, right? So I don't know if you've ever had an IGFA record or, or you know, how the process goes, right? Yeah, yeah I've done so it. So it's, <laughs> this is where it gets totally hilarious, dude. So, you know, you measure it out. It was, uh, you know, like I said, normally regals are three to four inches. It was 16 and a half inches long <laughs> with an 11 and a half inch girth, right? Two pounds, nine ounces. So IGFA sends me, you know, the stuff to, you know, fill out. And as I'm filling it out, you know, usually you're checking in like 200 pound marlin on an eight pound line or something, right? Or 200 pound tarp on an eight pound line. So they're like, you know, pound in weight. I'm like two pounds, eight ounces. They're like pound test. I'm like 65 pound braided line. <laughs> yeah? And then they're like length of fight. I'm like approximately 26 seconds. <laughs> so my boys are like, you got to get that thing mounted, dude. You got to get it mounted. I'm like, no way I'm getting mounted. And I did. I got it mounted. So the guy who mounted it, it was like coastal mounts or something. He goes, I, I'll tell you what, I got to create a mold for this. I've never, ever mounted a regal, and I don't think anybody has. But here's where Lloyd comes into the story again. So I have the regal mounted, right? And I have it. It's funny. It's in another room. But um, I had it mounted. And then in 2012, I don't know if Lloyd told you any of this or anything, but Superstorm Sandy came up here, and I, I lost everything in it, right? Mm. I live on the beach. Everything, everything I've ever owned in my life is just wiped off the map, right? That's another story. But so along with the Bergal mount, right? So I told Lloyd that or whatever in the Philadelphia Fishing Show about five years ago or something. I walk in, you know, to the show. I'm doing a seminar or whatever. And he goes, hey, I got something for him. I'm like, what? And he pulls out the Bergal mount again. He contacted Coastal Mounts. He goes, he has the same mold still there. He goes, I just made you another one. I was like, dude, thank you so much, man. It was so cool, you know? That's but, the kind of yeah. guy Lloyd is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's top notch. He's a good brother, man. That's <laughs> cool. That's the trash fish, dude. That's funny, man. That'd be like, yeah. I don't know what that would, what would be the equivalent of that in, in the Keys? Maybe like a... You're probably looking at a grunt, maybe. A grunt, you know? yeah. yeah. Like, or a pinfish. Like, think of like a, a three-pound pinfish, yeah. you know? That's what it comes down to. <laughs> That's awesome. I would mount. I would definitely mount a three-pound pinfish. I'll tell you what. You wouldn't want to mess with a three-pound pinfish. A three-pound pinfish would be a dangerous creature because if you leave them in in your live well, even with shrimp and crabs, they eat all the legs off your crabs, and they they they're not afraid of anything. They they're not afraid of something much bigger than them. And they could yeah. be really tough. When we went to Texas, the pinfish, I had never seen pinfish so ravenous as when we went to Texas and we had never been there for before. And we were fishing in the redfish tournaments and I was fishing a tube and I would just cast it out and, and 
we didn't really know what we were doing. We we're kind of just getting getting to the area for the first time. We we're just kind of surveying the scene. I'm casting a tube, and I'd bring it in, and all the the skirt was missing off the thing. That's weird. Put a new tube on, cast it out, bring it in. The skirt's gone again. That is what is going on. Get a different color, put that on, throw it out there, and then I'm, I'm watching as I'm bringing it in, and there's about sixty pinfish on my tube, just chewing on the end of it, and they would. Oh. In one cast, they would tear up your, your bait. It was crazy. I, they are voracious. so voracious, man. They are yeah. incredible. I mean, they don't—they're just not that aggressive in in the keys, but they are up there, man. In Texas, they—that's crazy. So about Sandy, um, that took your took your home away. So what'd you do? Dude, uh, funny, well, not funny story. Um, I'll try and make this real. Well, I'm glad you got a sense of humor about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's screwed up, brother. I'll tell you what. So, you know, Sandy came 2012, October 29, 2012, right? I was one of the last to leave Barrier Island. You know, the cops were coming up uh, to everyone's house saying, you know, if you're staying, it's mandatory evacuation. There's no, like, they're kicking people out of the houses. If you didn't go, they'd put you in the back of the car and go out. You had to write your number. Uh, serial number or social security number on your wrist and black marker if you decided to stay so they could identify you and stuff. So long story short, Sandy came through, evacuated the island. I had no idea if I had a home or not or anything like that for about a week, right? Like, because there was no TV, there was no, not only did the, the entire coastline just get completely decimated, but inland, there was no power for, you know, a week everywhere in Jersey, you know? So we couldn't get internet, couldn't get the TV, couldn't do anything, couldn't call anybody, cell phone, couldn't charge anything. It was, uh, it was crazy. So like I said, long story short, I snuck in with a cop. I was like sitting there. I'm like, I don't even know, like if I have a house left, I don't know if like anything exists. I don't know if it's like torn up or if it's still there, got snuck back in with him and I see it. And it was just absolute apocalyptic man all i can describe it as is being like a war zone dude i mean there was a running roads left hmm. we had to, there was no roads there was no houses everything was just on fire they had 30 foot flames of natural gas spewing out of the ground everywhere and just wow. driving through it in this toxic stench and i kind of got an idea where my house was because you couldn't even tell where you were on the island anymore and i'm like i think this is where it was and it's obviously not here anymore so I had to accept it. I was like, okay, it's done. And not only was that part done, but I don't care about losing the furniture, all the fishing gear and stuff, but all the stuff that means something to you in life. Like, you know, my dad gave me my first fishing pole, all the pictures I've had, um, you know, my granddad table, your favorite pocket knife, uh, you know, your mom's, you know, you know, letters to you in college and stuff like that. And all of my life from 38 years old, before that, it was totally wiped out. I don't even have pictures of me from being wow. a kid or teenager or anything or all my writings. So as a writer for, you know, back then, it was probably about 16 years, 17 years, full-time writer and photographer. All my writings, all my photography, all my hard drives, everything was just gone. I mean, not one thing left ever, you know? And um, so I was living out of like Salvation Army clothes for like two weeks. And then friends at the Saltwater Sportsman and Marlin and Bonnier, they had a GoFundMe, and so, you know, my buddy John Brownlee got all these rods sent up to me and stuff and uh, started amassing, like, fishing tackle, clothing again, and uh, 
And it just was crazy. And the crazy part of that is nine years later, I'm still not rebuilt back home. So anytime there's a hurricane, I'm on like, well, for the first five years, I was a guest on like HLN news, like CNN news is talking about how can this man be, you know, five years after the hurricane, the superstorm and still not back home. And it's just been such a crazy, crazy ride, man. But point of the matter is life moves on. It's been nine years. You know, I've moved at fifth. I had one place for 15 years that I lived in. Right. I bought my house when I was 23 years old on the beach. And I've lived in 15 different places since then. Hmm. How crazy wow. is that, right? Wow. But um, uh, it's, uh, if anything, it's, it's absolutely taught me um, how to move on, you know, accept, defeat, accept stuff that you can't control that's out of your hands. But to not worry about the small things in life, man, it's like, I see people get worried about the craziest stuff. I'm like, man... You know, it's like if you lose everything in your life, accept your life, you know, if you lose everything in your life and and thank God I got my life and none of my friends actually died in Sandy. But, um, you know, you know, you got to be thankful for that. And I am thankful for it. And anytime there's a big hurricane, I'll I'll uh, you know, I did a fundraiser for Irma and for Michael and stuff because Irma was the first one that actually looked like Sandy did a little bit, you know, yeah. Um, but, you know, it's something that I can relate to. And Michael did as well, you know, on the, the Gulf Coast there. So the point of the matter is it's like, you know, just keep pushing forward. But it's taught me like nothing can take me down, Tom. It's crazy stuff, man. It's like uh, I know that I can look at someone right in the eye and be like, I know you might have some stuff, but I got some stuff, too. You know, it's yeah, like man. I've been through some crazy stuff, man, not just losing everything. But the 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 real fight was after Sandy. You know what I mean? Like all that stuff that I lost and everything. I had to get through that stuff real fast. It's the fight afterwards that really is the challenge, you know. Like the so, fight. What? What about the fight afterwards that was so uh, challenging? Like for instance, paying a full mortgage on a house that doesn't exist. Right. Uh, paying full taxes on land to the township, even though there's no house on it, and I couldn't rebuild on it. Literally, couldn't rebuild. How they rezone the land, saying, you know, in this one mile section, ninety houses were wiped off the map. We're not telling you 90, you can't come back, you know, but you only have room for about 40. So you guys figure out amongst yourselves, how you're going to do the property really? management. Here. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, so, you know, and I sat down with governor Christie at the time, um, all the governors come through and promise me, well, yeah, we'll take care. We'll take care. And no one ever takes care of you. And as you know, when the new cycle goes down, everyone forgets about it. And that's the one thing I really dislike about, hurricanes and any natural disaster like does anyone remember the tornadoes that went through now i do you know but everyone else forgot about them right. you know it's like those people are still suffering you know so if anything i do want to eventually when maybe even when i get the show really rocking and rolling to be able to donate to charities even more and uh you know to help people out that go through natural disasters like that because they need it you know yeah, for sure i mean yeah living in florida you see you see it plenty and luckily we haven't been, I mean, we've certainly had, some people have certainly had some hard times, but there's, there's complete and total devastation, like what, what Louisiana has seen and, and parts of Texas and what you saw. And then there's like a, a pretty solid hit and, and there can be a big difference, yeah. you know, but, but I mean, I, <laughs> when you were talking about how you lost all that stuff that, that you know, your favorite pocket knife and pictures and all that stuff. I mean, we had hurricane Wilma come through uh key West and put about four and a half feet of seawater in our house. And, and it was not what, 
what you encountered, but the, you know, the loss in some ways is still the same, like birth certificates and, uh-huh. and pictures and presents that people gave your children and, and then just little things. And even today, like even today, probably I'll be looking for something and go, Oh yeah, that doesn't exist anymore. Like, and it's so weird, but like, and, and especially like we lost all the birth certificates of yeah. for the kids and what a pain that is to, to have to Tell go. Me about it. I mean, the only, the only thing that makes it better is it's like a lot of people lost birth certificates. Yeah. And so in that area, so, you know, they're, they're like, okay, yeah, we can, this is something we can do. If you're, if you lost your birth certificate in a hurricane and the kids were born somewhere else, good luck. Like, yeah, <laughs> like, so I lost my passport, my birth certificate, my social security card. Right. Mm-hmm. So the only thing I have is my driver's license. And they always ask you, you need another proof of idea. I had no like credit cards that left anything. Right. And I was basically completely off the map. I had no mail, no anything that could prove who I was. So I was like, I'm sitting there trying to get aid from like FEMA and stuff. And I couldn't prove who I was. You know? <laughs> it's like, so like, how do you get the aid? How do you get a loan? How do you do this to prove who you were? I was like, this is absolute mayhem. I mean, it was so insane. I was like, I'm just going to go to the Caribbean and totally go off the map for the rest of my life. I was like, oh, like there's, you know, there's no, there's no documentation that I exist anymore. You know, wow. it's bizarre. Boy, that is something you don't really think about. Like just, you know, yeah. you're just talking about being thankful and grateful for just, you know, and, and not getting upset about the littlest things. It's like, look, you got two pieces of ID. Like the world is yours. Like there's no, yeah. you have no, you have no problems like right now. And, and, and when yeah. you think about that, like, I, I don't know that I've ever, I've ever, I guess some friends in Louisiana have probably been in that situation, I guess, but we've never really talked about it, but I don't think I've ever talked about, about that with somebody that, that didn't have two pieces of ID and what kind of a problem that causes in today's world. That is, that right. is bizarre. That's something that you don't even think about. Like, right. That's what I'm like. I learned so many new new things in life and how the world is you know like after you lose your identity you lose everything in your life and you still got to battle mortgage companies still got to battle taxes you still got to battle like rent you know it's like there just so many crazy facets that reach outside of just normally just losing your stuff from a hurricane it's like the system you're in the system but you're you're unidentifiable you know it's 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 so so did you change anything about like, like once you get back on your feet, you get all this stuff. Do you do things differently now? Do you keep some copies of stuff in a, in a safe deposit box or, or do you do anything Sorry. differently? You know, as a writer, I do now. So it's like, um, all my stuff is bad. And it, it's almost like, it, it's not necessarily like, uh, obsessive, but I have two hard drives up and then every like two years, I'll take that one hard drive that's already backed up. And I'll put it like in a different location at like my mom and dad's house or something like far away, you know? And then I started a new hard drive again with all that stuff on it, but there's a big backup over there because mm-hmm. I don't necessarily trust the cloud or anything like that. I really need like something that's hard, you know? Um, so yeah, for backup wise, I did. And, you know, in retrospect, obviously if I knew the storm was going to be that bad, I would have taken everything out of the house, you know, but they're like, Oh, it'd be maybe three, four foot of flooding, something like that. You know, you didn't think we we're just going to be totally decimated. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, like completely, you know, and, you know, I, I didn't think of like, like back then it was like 2012. So I had like maybe one backup drive or something like that. 
there wasn't all these different options that you can really truly back up all your stuff. And I'm like, I'll just put it up in the attic. It's going to be good. You know what? You know, floods downstairs. I'm not going to worry about taking everything out of my house. I'll just put it up high. Right. I'll have to change the carpeting and maybe get mold remediation or something, you know? But you just don't think of that. But nowadays, that's kind of what I've changed, you know, like in a practical sense. But, uh, you know, in an emotional sense and everything, I'm tempered. I'm very tempered with the way things are. Like, I know how to help people through death of their family members, you know, uh, car crashes, you know, getting like a bad diagnosis or something. I kind of know how to react to that with empathy and with uh, <clears throat> um with a little bit of poise, you know, I guess, whereas like, you know, before I may not be able to have a, you know, figure out how to actually talk to someone about that. Because once you, once you do know loss and you feel loss and you have that upon you, it's, it really is almost empowering. If I can say that, because you know that you have something that you can help other people out with that they may not have. Mm. And, uh, it, it is something that, um, that's, you know, you got to look at the, the the bright side of things, and that's one of the bright side of things that came out. I'm wow. glad to be able to help people on any emotional journey or, you know, spiritual journey that they may have, you know, coming great. through the loss that I've had with that. And like I said, I didn't lose my life. I didn't, my family didn't lose their lives or anything. But, you know, when you lose, you know, everything up to 38 years old, you know, it's wiped off. I got... I can't prove or show pictures of me in college and, you know, all the cool traveling I did or, you know, all, all my fish pictures, you know, it's like reestablishing your identity, which is really bizarre, yeah. you know? So well, what a great perspective you came away from that with, I mean, that you, you could, you could have somebody in the same situation that would come away with a completely different perspective and be real negative and sour about the whole, the whole deal. And you come away with this really amazing perspective that has obviously enhanced your life and made you made you live you know with with gratitude that's awesome man and you know, if i can say this too you know how you're saying like you know you didn't get bitter my one friend mickey he told me um right after sandy he's like you know what i'm glad to hear because like you know everyone knew someone or had something going on that had problems with sandy but like i was one of the worst examples you know what happened and my buddy Mickey is like a week after, two weeks after, you know, and everyone always wants to turn another cheek and say, it's good. I'll get back on my feet. It's good. And he's like, dude, like, how do you feel? Are you okay? I go, no, man, this effing sucks. <laughs> like, this is horrible. I was like, this is, this is absolutely horrible. It, it sucks. You know? And he's like, it's so refreshing to hear someone just be honest, you know, and not say, oh, I'm going to get back up there and get back on the horse. It's like, yeah, you're going to do that. But you have to go through the process of saying that it's horrible. You know, you have to internalize that, you know, yeah. and many people won't or refuse to, you have to acknowledge that it's a bad thing, you know? Yeah. So it's a yeah, bad thing. And how do you make the, the how do you make the best out of, how do you make the best out of the bad thing? I guess is where you, yeah. where you have to be. It's like, yep, this is, this is a pretty rough situation. What do we do yeah. now? <laughs> well, yeah. good for you, man. You, you've you've uh, you've obviously come away from it in a in a great place, and and I know you're still struggling with it. But damn, that's uh, yeah. <laughs> wow, man, that's that's something. Um, so I know you got something to do here in a little bit, but I, I have some questions I want to finish up with. Um, 
Sure. That I've kind of started to ask a lot of people kind of certain variations of these questions. But in in, in your world, you, you're a writer. You are a world traveler. You're a, a world record holder. You're a Northeast fisherman. You fish all over the place. It When you talk to a bunch of different anglers or or just, you know, I don't know, could be people, could be anything in your world. Um, you, you see people that when you when you see what they're doing, you see that they're doing something either wrong or could be done a whole lot better. And it just sticks out to you. And it happens over and over in your world. Do you have anything like that that sticks out? You mean talking about in the fishing industry could be. or just like... Could be. Yeah. Whatever. Whatever comes to mind. You know, it's funny. Um, well, it kind of always depends on the situation, but everyone's going to go through life doing it the way that they want to do it. But I understand what you're saying in the way that like, like, can you do this a little bit better or something? You know, um, I generally don't go around telling people like what to do better. It's just not my thing. It's like, I feel like everyone's got their own way about doing it. Now, granted, if someone's like drinking 10 beers and getting in a car, I'm like, what are you doing? You know what I mean? <laughs> That's not happening, dude. You know, but like, um, but if someone wants to go through life the way that they have to do it, sometimes you have to fail to understand your, you can't have someone tell you this is the wrong way to do it. You have to fail and let them fail to be able to do it and realize become a little bit more enlightened in the sense of saying, you know, I know you were trying to tell me this before you weren't pushing it down my throat, but now I understand why, you know, there's wisdom gained in failure. And, um, I don't go around normally to just preaching people what to do or how to change their lives or how they want to live their lives just to be straight with it, you know, but if someone's tying an Albright, not the wrong way, I'm going to tell them how to do it. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Right. Well, what about in the fishing world where, where it is technical and you can see that someone is, is doing something the wrong way. Is there something that stands what, out? What, what I will do, what I will mention, if I see someone that is in my, and this is only my point of view, I believe fishing is something to be enjoyed. I don't think, and this is what I think is ruining a lot of it, um, not necessarily on the competitive level, but it's gotten into this like whole new reality TV level where everything's competitive and dramatic and it destroys the, the ethos of our industry. And I'm not talking about as an old guy or anything. I think fishing is meant to be enjoyed. I think fishing is not meant to be like a commodity, even though it has to be regulated as one. But I do believe that people should really understand the spiritual aspect of it and realize that it brings people together and shouldn't put people apart, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and that's the scary thing I see a lot in our industry. Granted, it just could be a phase of people going through that are, are thinking fishing is like trading stocks or something like that, you know, where it's competitive and, oh, I beat you on this. I did that. Oh, you, oh, you suck. Oh, you know, oh, oh, make fun of this guy, that guy. I've never made fun of anybody in fishing growing up. You know what I mean? Yeah, we could laugh and stuff and have a good time, but there's this sense of vitriol, like a vitriolic sense of people wanting to attack other people now mm -hmm. that social media has brought upon us. And, sure. uh, and I think it's, I think it's, I hope it cycles out of our industry. I just had this conversation with Poveromo two nights ago, actually. Um, I really do hope it cycles out of our industry and gets rid of all the, the, the crap that people take as truth when it's just spewed out all the time. And because it's spewed out all the time, people take it as truth. When the truth of the industry is people that dedicate their lives or you don't have to dedicate your lives to it. You can have your own job and have nothing to do with fishing in the industry. But you enjoy going fishing, you enjoy taking your kids or your wife or your friends fishing, 
You know, that's what it should be. It shouldn't be competitive. I think it creates a lot of anxiety amongst people. You yeah. know, and that's not what fishing should do. Yeah, you certainly have that. And, and a lot of that is, in my opinion, um, brought on by social media. And But you also have something that I, I notice that I, I try to talk about here a, a, a good bit is that you have these different, and, and we have had this even before social media, is you have these different um, kind of affinity types. Like you might have the fly fisherman and you might have the bait fisherman and you might have the surf fisherman and and this group doesn't like this group and this group doesn't like this group and it's like wait a minute like we got bigger problems than the fly guys don't like the lure guys right or the or yeah. the, the fly guys don't like the bait chuckers you know and it's like man we really need to step back and realize that like if there was a problem and and you're on a river this little river and you don't like the fly guys don't like the bait guys. Okay. I get, I get that kind of, but when you, when you fight amongst yourselves, it makes it so much easier for any power that wants to dump sewage in the river or close right. the river or make some kind of a, a, a regulation that's not good for either party. When you split into two groups or five groups or 10 groups that don't mm -hmm. like each other and can't talk amongst one another to protect the overall good of the river or the ocean or the place where you're fishing. That's not good. That's, right. that's yeah. not good. And, and I don't yeah. like the infighting, like what, what you're talking about. I call it infighting where you, yeah. where, where we all like to fish, but we're fighting with each other over what style of fishing is best or, or preferred or like who cares man if you're having fun <laughs> exactly. like if you like to throw bait man good oh, great yeah. awesome right you're one well, of that, it that, should be like you're one of us right yeah. instead of ooh, gross there's certain things by the way tom too uh i got a text i got to 445 if you still want okay. to go yeah yeah we'll, we'll, but, we'll, um, we'll go but um well, like you said and back in the days and um this way. I do all fish. In fact, I'm going ice fishing tomorrow, right? So I do all fishing, fly fishing, chunking, plugging, trolling, jigging, whatever it takes, you know? Um, and I, I wrote this like a long time ago, in like 2003. Granted, I was a little more jaded back then on this particular uh, demographic of people, but I always thought that fly fishing, you know, brought a sense of elitism to the sport back mm -hmm. then. I mean, it's a lot more it, different the way I look at things now, but you know, and like, I'm looking at people that like get in the industry and start having like, like a voice that have either been like hedge fund managers and then they came into fly fishing. Like, no, you didn't jig, you didn't chunk bait for bass. You, didn't, you just weren't right in the fly fishing. And now like, you think like, that's the only fishing that's out there, you know? Right. And so like your voice now is like, okay, it's all about this particular piece of the fishing industry to have a voice. And that's wrong. And like, and, it, and it, yeah. it goes on what you were just saying there. We're all the same. We enjoy the same, you know, resource, enjoy the same sport. We might go about it different ways, but you have to come together because otherwise the powers that be that are trying to go against, whether it's something as a whole, the fishing community doesn't agree on. It's a divide and conquer strategy, mm -hmm. you know? Yes. And if we divide, and, if we divide ourselves, we're going to get conquered easy. That's exactly right. To. And you know, it, it happens even on a, even, even further 
in than that on a nuanced level where people get into fly fishing and that's the only type of fishing they've ever done. And, but then they get into dry fly fishing and they don't like the guys that nymph or shoot or fly or throw streamers or whatever. And, and it's like, dude, like, uh, -uh. like that, that is like, everybody's just trying to have fun. If you like to dry fly fish, just go for it, dude, do, do you, and don't worry about what everybody else is doing, but let's all, let's all be together as anglers so that we can, you know, fight the fight the fight of of what it what it will be is actually having the right to go do what you want to do, yeah. go fish on yeah. that particular river or go fish in this you, particular you know, area because they close the areas down. They'll just yeah. close it down. You know, like on this level, like to bring it back to what you're saying here is that I think people that have that mindset, like say and believe believe me and believe you, obviously. I love fly fishing. I love all sorts of fish yeah, and everything. Too. But I think I think people, and I'm going to equate like social media and people outside of the fishing industry, when they come into this industry, they don't understand the ethos of what, why we really do this, right? They might just come in and like, you know, some guy who says, you know, oh, I want to be a fly fisherman because it's a cool thing. And then I'm going to start, you know, fly fishing and it's bad about that or, you know, on, on any level. But I think it's like the same thing as social media where you see people like being like, oh, I call these big fish and this and that. And like, oh, F you, oh, you didn't catch that. Or that's not a big fish. You know, it's like, that's not who we are as fishermen. But you have these outside influences that are getting into our world that are taking this outside garbage and bringing it into ours and kind of dividing us a little bit. Because then when any of us gets attacked, you know, or any human being or whatever gets attacked in a way, you want to fight back. And when you fight back like that you're just entering this whole drama situation like you're on the kardashians or something you know <laughs> and like, like i don't even want, i don't want to talk to people about fishing half the time because i don't want to like i mean when you see them face to face yes but i will not engage on facebook instagram social media if anyone starts complaining you know what i do delete gone i don't need you I, like i don't need you you know what i mean like i don't need you commenting like oh free speech no just gone yeah <laughs> I yeah. you. Well, you that's, know? that's, you know, it is, it is your page and it is for free. So you, yeah. you can do that. <laughs> um, all right, cool. That's enough about that. Um, what, what about, um, do you have a couple of books that you've read that meant a lot to you? Um, funny enough, uh, outside the fishing industry, I just, uh, one of my favorite books, I had a first edition of white Fang by Jack London, nice. like 1909. And yeah. my wife got it for me again. She tracked it down at one of the old book antique, uh, sites and got me a, a white Fang original copy. Nice. again. I was Did you lose that in the hurricane? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, all all oh. good stuff, man. I like, uh, yeah, some crazy fishing books in there, man. And, uh, prints, uh, from, old like field and i forget the artist's name um uh, it's eluding me right now but i had original prints from like 1940s field and stream magazines from the artist not mclean i forget who it was but um yeah so that book was awesome um you know uh call i mean i'm a big jack london fan you know mm -hmm. and uh you know in my college years and later years hunter thompson you know obviously ernest hemingway all the all the good uh gonzo type <laughs> reads and uh uh thoreau walden pond really it triggered me when i was younger uh a lot of kafka um you know a lot of philosophy too so nice. yeah Dao de ching very simple and very understandable so <laughs> nice i like it 
Cool. That was a great question for you because you have a lot of, you, you've, you've obviously read tons of books and, and a lot of far side cartoons. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you got to throw in the far side. Of course, my favorite is when the bears are peeking through the woods and they see the people in the, in the, in the sleeping bags and they just say sandwiches. <laughs> that's, that's my favorite. <laughs> or, or the one, my, my other one, my, my very favorite probably of all time is the, the dog in the car, the guy's driving away and and the other dog is in the yard and he's looking like dang man i wish i could go and the one the dog in the car is like hey we're going to the hardware store and then after that we're going to hit the post office and then after that i'm going to get tutored (laughs) 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 the other dog is just looking at him like "Uh (laughs) uh-huh i'm going to get tutored (laughs) my favorite one was official one where two guys are in the boat and there's a big nuclear blast behind them Yes. And he goes, what does it mean, Sam? I'll tell you what it means. Screw the limit. Yep. <laughs> that one's that was perfect, man. That was a that was a really outstanding one. I love the far side. I mean, those were so those are so awesome. Um, all right. So in in you've been fishing for forever. And uh you've been around for, for a long time, long enough to where certain things like cell phones did not even exist when, when we were first starting to fish and all the things that go with it. But I'm wondering if you were to think about it and be pressed on it, is there a technologic advantage advancement, something that happened in technology that has changed the sport the most Um, in your opinion? Well, for the better or for the worse, either way, doesn't matter. (laughs) Well, obviously, I mean, like probably everyone said, social media has changed it for the worse just because the spot burned in and people don't realize that, like, I'm going to go for the worse and for the better. I'll do the worst first is, um, you know, like I said, it creates like this, this community that there's no real person behind. It could just be anyone spouting off on stuff and creating drama. But likewise, too, it's killed spots, you know, Um and as any true hardcore fisherman knows, like there's spots that everyone kind of knows about word of mouth and whatever. And then there's spots like where word of park and access and this and that, and it just gets blown up on Facebook. Like could be someone just starting to learn how to fish. Maybe they just don't know. Honestly, maybe it's just ignorance. Like I'll oh, go park on uh, Princeton Ave or something like that. Oh, you could just access, you know? And then you're like, why did this guy say that? Then there's 20 cars there too much parking and then they shut it down. Then they outlaw parking, Mm -hmm. you know? So that's the worst part about it. And that's through social media. And it could also be through cell phone usage, you know what I mean? Or, you know, people just posting on what's going on, but for the better is Google maps, which is cool. I remember when I was down at a saltwater sportsman working there and I'd always go up to the Canaveral, Titusville, you know, mosquito lagoon. And I'm like, I'm going to find some cool shore fishing spots. And that's really when Google is like 2010. So like Google maps was just kind of coming around with the satellite images. And I'm like zooming in. I'm like, Oh, it looks like a little sand road. I can get in there, drive my Jeep. You know, I got to just, you know, go through this little tiny puddle or something. And I found all these little sand spits that I was fishing and catching redfish on and sea trout and dodging gators and stuff. And, uh, that was cool. Cause I would never have, found that spot unless I just started searching around, you know? So I think technology in that way is kind of cool that you can do your own searching, you know, and find spots to fish or something that could be fishable that are, you know, and maybe you got to hoof it to, or they're inaccessible spots, but you can kind of get a gauge. Okay. That's 300 yards away. I could park here and walk in, you know? Mm -hmm. So 
Yeah. Awesome. All right, man. That's great. So I know you got someplace to go and I do too. Um, if people want to watch your show, if they want to read some of your stuff that you write, where, where do they go? How do people follow you? They can go to the, uh, well, saltwaterunderground.com is the easiest. And then on Sportsman's channel, my show, Saltwater Underground, is running through the end of March on 10.30 a.m. on Friday and Sundays, 4.30 p.m. a.m. And then, as you know, all my reruns after that are on Waypoint TV. So anybody can access them 24-7 on the Saltwater Underground with Nick Konoshevsky tab. And uh, my YouTube and Instagram at Nick Konoshevsky as well. Okay. All right, Nick, man. Awesome. Great to, great to talk with you. It was uh, a really fun conversation, man. I, I, I liked it. Um, and, and I didn't know all the, the stuff about Sandy, man. Good. Yeah. Goodness, crazy man. Stuff, man. What a, what a, <laughs> what a crazy experience. But, uh, but I do have yeah. to say, man, you, you really came through that in a, uh, in a real positive way. And you're, you're certainly to be commended for that. That's, that's, um, that's kind of unex- I, that's unexpected. I don't I don't know what I expected, but just just your your attitude, the way that you came around, and your perspective on the whole situation is is really really cool, man. So good for you. Thank good you. For you. Appreciate it. And sorry and sorry for you at the same time. Uh, no, like, don't be sorry for me, brother. I'm yeah, good. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. All right. Well, Nick, thanks, man. Thanks for doing it. We'll do it again, and uh, you guys go follow him and check out his show. It's awesome. All right. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. You bet, buddy. We'll talk to you soon. (laughs) See you. See you, man.